If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you if you would turn in it or turn on turn it on to, to Haggai chapter two this morning. We'll for the most part be in Haggai chapter two so that you'll be in the right spot. Uh, I am wondering, this is kind of one of those things I, I wonder sometimes. It's probably a little bit embarrassing, but I'll join I'll have you join me in my embarrassment. I wonder if you've ever sat down in front of a computer or maybe in front of a TV with the expectation you're going to do something on the computer or you're going to watch something on TV and you're sitting there waiting and the screen doesn't come on. And after getting frustrated and fuming that you're going to have to replace the stupid thing because it doesn't work, you discover... Or worse, someone else points out to you that you forgot to turn it on or maybe plug it in. It may be unfortunate, but it happens to us more often than not that we can miss some of the things that are the most obvious in life. We can just not see them, not catch them. Perhaps it's because of this tendency to miss the obvious things, to miss the things that we really shouldn't, but we really should pay attention to. That a guy named Haddon Robinson, who I believe may have spoken at Central in the 1980s, Haddon Robinson wrote a book on preaching, and in that book on preaching, he shared this statement. He said, an old recipe for a rabbit dish starts out, first, catch the rabbit. Now, perhaps that's really obvious, but... Maybe we miss that sometimes. Maybe it is obvious, but since we miss the obvious things, let me point out, let me underline this. If you and I miss critical things, some things we miss are so obvious, they're critical, but they're also obvious. If we miss critical things, problems occur. Damage is done. We need to understand that. Now, as we continue our our series through the short Old Testament book of Haggai this morning, we're we're coming to Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. Now, when we come to verse 10, I I need you to understand that we've kind of gone from verse 9 of chapter 2, we looked at last week, ended in October of 520 B.C. Now, all of a sudden, we've jumped in time to December. Okay, so we're jumping ahead literally to December the 18th, 520 B.C. There's there's been this gap. And in that two-month gap from mid to late October to mid to late December, in the midst of that two-month gap, another Old Testament prophet showed up on the scene, showed up in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Zechariah. And he began his ministry in Jerusalem in that gap. And so what I want you to do, and this should be fairly easy, you can probably just flip a page to the right in your Bible, maybe two pages, but in my Bible it's literally just over the page. And I want us to hear Zechariah's first message, kind of how he started his ministry in this two-month gap. Okay, so verses 1 to 4 of Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
Do not be like the fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now we just need to kind of jump in and understand the scene here for a second. Zechariah is in Jerusalem, okay, speaking to the exact same people that Haggai had spoken to. The people Haggai had said back in chapter 1, back in August, late August, August 29th, consider your ways. And when we looked at Haggai chapter 1, we said Haggai told them to consider their ways because he was wanting to move them to the place where they would confess and repent of their sins. Okay, that's why he was doing that. He was saying, you've got to deal with it. That's what Haggai was saying. But now, so from the end of August, now we're sometime in the month of November. Zechariah is telling the same people to return to the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the command to return to the Lord literally would mean to repent. But that's what Haggai had told them to do already. And they had done that, right? I mean, they had repented. God said, you're not building the temple. You're not doing these things. And they seemed to have repented because they'd started building the temple. But now here they are into the temple building process. And they're being told, repent. You kind of wonder, were they missing something? Something wasn't computing. What's going on? Now, I think if we're going to understand both Zechariah and Haggai, it might be helpful for us to kind of just consider for a minute what probably the typical person living in Jerusalem might have been thinking, kind of what was going through their minds as this is going, taking place. Okay, So the first thought might simply be this. Hey, I'm back in the promised land. Okay, I, I left... I left the place I was living. I left living in Persia. I came 900 miles by foot. How many of you have walked 900 miles? Now, I'm not talking life cumulatively. I'm talking about a one-time trip. Okay, I mean, that's fairly sick. How many of us like to drive 900 miles? Okay, I went 900 miles. I'm back in the promised land. I'm back in the place where God had uniquely made His name and presence known. I'm back in the right place. That's got to count for something. Second thought might have been going through their minds. Hey, I, I'm doing good things. I listened at the end of August when I was told I needed to consider my ways. I've considered my ways and now I'm doing good stuff. I'm building the temple. I'm getting my hands dirty. I'm working all the time. Now those two thoughts together probably brought them to somewhat of a conclusion about how they were doing spiritually. And the conclusion would simply be this, everything must be good. Everything must be good, right? I'm in the right place, and I'm doing the right stuff, so everything should be good. So, all of a sudden, they hear Zacharias say, you need to return to the Lord, and I think they might be a little confused. They might just blow it off and say, Zachariah doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, or Zachariah, we already heard that sermon, preach something new. You know, tell us something we haven't heard before. Or maybe they began to ask themselves, do I need to return to the Lord? I thought being here in Jerusalem was kind of like being with God. I thought that was good enough. Do I need to repent? Do I need to repent? I think that might be a question they kind of got to. Do I need to do this? 
Now, Haggai and Zechariah, in fairness, I think they were concerned for the hearts and souls of the people of Jerusalem. Okay, Rebuilding the temple, which is what Haggai kind of points to, seems pretty important. In the unfolding of the plan of God, rebuilding the temple was important. But as we've talked about going through Haggai, and Zechariah kind of shines the light on it again. The rebooting of their souls. And really the returning of their hearts at a heart desire at a profound and deep level to God was critical. Building the temple is important. Rebooting their souls is critical. One of the things that is true about me is I'm task-oriented. And so it's very easy for me to think, as long as I'm doing a task, everything must be good. You know, I, I can check off the to-do list. And so I'll be honest, when I read some of this stuff, there's a natural default in me that goes, I'm not quite sure I get it. See, building the temple, that's a task. Rebooting the soul, I'm not sure that's a task. And I'm going to get, I get a little confused, and I'm going to think, Maybe they were confused. But folks, I think as obvious as it might seem, it is critical that we do not overlook our hearts, our souls. It's critical that we understand and we live in a way that our hearts and souls are tightly connected to God. Now, given that the people had already been told a few times, you need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. As we come to verse 10 of Haggai, Haggai, God has Haggai take a little different approach. He's going to get to a place. We're going to get, and we're going to see, Haggai's going to say again, consider your ways. He's going to raise the issue again. But before he gets there, he wants to share, I think, sort of two truths that are sort of soul-shaping truths. Two things that will have a huge impact on our souls. Okay, truth number one. Holiness requires personal contact with God. Now, when I say the word holiness, I'm not talking about walking around like this all the time, you know, and looking weird or something. Holiness, a, a simple definition of holiness means you're living like Jesus. To be holy is to be like Jesus, to be connected to Jesus. Okay, it's sort of a working definition to keep in the background. But I want you to read with me verses 10 to 12 to kind of jump into this new message. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Now I'm going to guess for most of us, verse 12 seems a little weird. So let me try to explain what I think is going on here. Now, when it talks about holy meat, it's talking about meat that was being set aside for a sacrifice to God. 
there could be different kinds. There's not enough detail in verse 12 for us to know exactly which kind of offering because there's a few different kinds of offering that could be given. What we need to understand is the meat, the flesh, whatever you want to call it, it literally is the word flesh, but it's the meat of the animal. That meat, since it was set aside to God, would be viewed as God's. And if you want to think from this point in time in 520 B.C. to the cross, we think about the Lord Jesus as the sacrifice. He's the meat, so to speak. But realize the Lord Jesus is God. So when we think about this meat of the sacrifice, we in one sense need to say, this is God. Now, what he's trying to tell us is, if you have God who's holy, you have this holy meat, if it touches a garment, that garment is holy as well. See, sometimes when they would do these offerings, the priest would have to carry the meat. So they'd carry it in a garment, and the idea is that garment then becomes holy. But the question is, if you take that garment and have it touch other things, does that make other things holy? And the priest says, no. See, the point really of verse 12, the issue being raised of the question and the answer, is to help us to see for something to be holy, it needs to be tightly connected to God. Okay, to God's stuff. It needs to be intricately. There's a direct connection needed. Okay, you can't have something between you and God and you still be holy. You need to be connected to God. Now, there's an important implication that I don't want us to miss. Kind of draw it out, kind of zoom our attention on it. Because I think this is easy for us to do. I think it's very possible for us to think that because we're in a building we call a church, even if it's in the gym, but we're in a church, and, and we sang sort of spiritual songs. You know, we didn't sing anything from a rock station. We sang spiritual songs, and I should have brought, oh, it does say, it does. And you open up the Bible, and what does it say? It says, holy right there. It's easy for us to think then, hey, if I'm in church and we're singing these kinds of songs, then I'm holding the Holy Bible. That everything must be good. You know, I must be spiritually in a wonderful place. It's easy for us, I think, to think that. But verse 12 is telling us it's not about all that other stuff. I need to be directly connected to God. And verses like John chapter 14, verse 6, and Acts chapter 4, verse 12, remind us the only way you and I are directly connected to God is through the Lord Jesus. That we need to turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior. And when we do that, the Bible tells us we're in Christ. And when we're in Christ, then we are connected to God. Huge question, not insignificant in any way, shape, or form. Have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Are you in what the Bible would say? Are you in Christ? Is your life connected to Him? That's not insignificant. If you and I are really going to function like, if we're going to know what God has for us, we have to be tightly connected. Now, if you might say, yeah, I've done that. Well, a follow-up question, which is a significant follow-up question is are you living connected to Him? Are you staying tightly connected? Why does that matter? Well, truth number two that shapes our souls. 
Truth number two is that our souls can easily get dirty. Our souls can easily get dirty. Verse 13. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It it does become unclean. Now, Now again, odd words for us. What do you mean unclean? What are we talking about? Well, they knew in their culture... They understood from what the Old Testament God had spoken and revealed is if you touched a dead person, you were considered unclean, which meant when they were living in the wilderness in that imagery, they had to be outside the camp. They maybe had some measure of connection to God. If they were in the camp, they were sort of considered in God's people. But when they were unclean, when they were dirty, they had to go outside the camp. Yeah, they knew about this. They had some measure of connection. But all of a sudden now there's a distance. There's dirt between them. And the thing is, is if I'm dirty and I touch you, guess what? You're dirty. And you touch the next person, guess what? They're dirty. The dirt spreads really simply. Got a text message. Someone on staff came down with the stomach flu and we had all kind of eaten some stuff together on Friday morning. Kind of like, I hope I didn't give it to you. And I'm thinking, not nearly as much as I hope you didn't give it to me. But think about it, the stomach flu spreads really quickly, right? Or a cold. If I have a cold and I walk over to you and cough in your face, you're going to give me a hug, I'm sure. But it spreads really easy. We need to understand that's part of what's being communicated here. Okay, two souls, two things that should shape our souls. If I'm going to be holy, if I'm going to be who God's calling me to be, I must be tightly connected to Him. But the truth is, it's really easy for dirt to get in between. And all of a sudden, there's distance. Okay, with those truths in mind, I want to go back to ask the question, do I need to repent? Is repentance needed? Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Okay, verse 14 is a direct application of verses 12 and 13. Okay, though they were in Jerusalem, okay, though they were doing the good work of rebuilding the temple, you know, everything kind of looked good. They had the appearance that this must be good. There was actually a big problem. They were unclean. There were things that had kind of getting between them and God. And that means everything they did in that sense was tainted. Even rebuilding the temple. It's colored. Now, verse 14, I want you to notice the words, this people. Okay, God's not calling them my people. He's saying this people. That, that, that expression, this people, is kind of like a neon light saying, hey, there's a distance going on here. There's a, a distance from the divine one they need to be with. And here's the thing. They didn't see it. The people didn't see it. But God did. God knew there was a problem. 
God knew that they were distant from Him, that their hands were dirty, that, that in that sense everything they did was dirty. They needed to repent. They needed to reboot their spiritual lives. I don't know all what was going through their minds when they got to verse 14, but part of me wonders if they had a question. Really? Now it might have been, really? Or it might have been, really? One of the lessons that I seem to have the chance to relearn again and again and again is I've noticed that a whole lot of us, and I'm not just meaning here at Central, I'm just, Central's included, but I think a whole lot of us really don't like being told we have to do things. And I'm not sure, but I kind of imagine the people in Jerusalem were not exactly thrilled when they were told they needed to repent. And I must confess, I don't necessarily like standing up here and saying that the words of Haggai and Zechariah might apply to us. That we might need to repent. You may not be enjoying me here say the words, you need to repent. I'm trying to say it softly and not, you need to repent! But you might be hearing, you need to repent! Because we don't like being told what to do. We don't know exactly how, in that sense, Haggai shared this message. But in my imagination, I, I kind of get the sense that when he got to the end of verse 14, that there might have been a, gra- a gas kind of going through the crowd. He just said our work on the temple is dirty. Did he really mean that? And I could see that the gas kind of would lead to some murmuring going through the crowd. Haggai can't be serious, can he? Do we really need to repent? Maybe you and I feel sort of the same urge to repent, the same urge to, to murmur. I mean, is Haggai saying we need to repent? In response to my imagined murmuring and their question of really, look at verses 15 to 18. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one of you came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Now, similar to to Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, God again is calling them to consider their lives, to examine their lives, to really look at what's going on in their hearts and in their souls and, and what's flowing out from that, what's going on in them and then what's coming forth out of that. And again, similar to Haggai chapter 1, sort of verse 6 and verses 9 to 11, God's incredibly aware that things are not right. And God is taking action to bring correction. God needed to move to bring them to repentance. I want you to zoom in in your your Bible on, on verse 17 with me. 
when God says he struck them, part of what that means is that God was being faithful to the covenant he had made with the people of Israel in Exodus. That's going back a long time from where they're sitting. The words of verse 17 are are very similar to promises God made to the people about His faithfulness to the covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 22. Again, a long ways back in time. He said, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to operate. The words are also very similar, if not a direct quote of part of Amos chapter 4 and verse 9. Amos was the first prophet to actually kind of give us a written record of his prophecy. He wrote somewhere between 790 and 750 B.C. in that kind of time frame. So again, this is going back in time. We're in 520 B.C. So the words that they're hearing, the words coming forth in verse 17, there's nothing new. They'd heard this in that sense before. God brought the blight and the mildew and the hail to spark the people. He had told them in advance He'd do this. If it's needed, I'm going to do it. And He did it so they'd see that there was a problem and that they'd turn from the problem. But here's the kicker of verse 17. They ignored it. They blew it off and didn't pay attention. You could say something that should have been really obvious. They didn't see Here's a question. Do you think that we are spiritually superior to them? Do you think that that we listen to God and we rightly respond to God? Or do we ignore God? In preparing for today, this this last week I wanted to spend the whole week in the worship center watching them build the pews because in preparing for this week God had me participate in a conversation with my wife a number of conversations with him and conversations with the books Some books in my office. In a multi-layered way, God was showing me how I had missed things that He had sought to communicate with me. He was speaking. I have missed gracious words of support, correction, and conviction from my wife. I have missed truths that I'd underlined in books. Yeah, I underlined them. I could tell that's the important part. But I just skipped right over. And I know that my list of misses probably don't stop there. Folks, the people of Jerusalem needed to repent. There were things they needed to address in their lives. And I believe we're no different. I think we should be continually repenting.
It's not just a one-time thing. I think it needs to be ongoing. What would motivate anybody to do that? Well, Haggai doesn't end his message in verse 18. It goes on into verse 19. And I think verse 19 maybe offers us a couple of reasons that, that might motivate us to actually repent. Kind of put it in perspective. Why would I repent? God's telling me to do it. Yes, He is. But why else? What, what does God bring in that sense? Reason number one. Why would I repent? Because life is beyond us. Life's beyond us. Look at the first part of verse 19. Is the siege yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Now, in the background of those verses is, is the drought and the famine that they've been having. Okay, we looked at that in verse in chapter 1. They, they were struggling. So they were short of food stuff. They didn't have a lot. And by this point on their agricultural calendar, by this point in December, they would have planted their wheat and their barley. Now, if it had been, if the previous year had been a good year, if they'd had an abundant harvest, they would have some seed in the field, but they'd have some in the barn. But it hadn't been a good year. So there was no seed left. Everything had to go into the ground hoping, hoping that this year it would be a good year. And at the same time, the other plants that are listed there, the other produce, it was too early in the year to, to know how were they going to produce. What was the harvest going to be of those things? You know, were the people going to have enough? That was a question they had to face. Are we going to have enough? It's a great question to ask, but they didn't have an answer. They didn't know. Now, they did have some part in the process of life. They don't just sit there and all, everything in life just happens. Okay? There are things they need to do. There are things in life you and I need to do. Okay? They needed to put the seed in the ground. Okay? My grandfather immigrated from Scotland to Canada to be a farmer. That's about all I know about farming. You've got to put the seed in the ground. My family couldn't get it to grow. You've got to put it in the ground. But we don't control anything else. right? We don't control what happens. We don't control germination. That tells us something about ourselves. Okay? We don't control outcomes. We don't control life. We do not define reality. We're not what life should center around. We certainly are not what is the priority of life. Well, that raises some questions. Who is in control? Who is the definer of reality? Who should be the center of life that things revolve around? Who should be the priority of life? Well, to Haggai, the answer to those questions is very straightforward. The answer to all those questions is God. He is the controller. He is the definer. He is the center of life. He is the priority of life. And if that's true, folks, if that is true, then repenting, the process of continually removing anything in my life that hinders my relationship with God, I need to do. 
Repenting isn't a knee isn't an added thing I can do sometimes. Repenting becomes vital to my life. Repenting is aligning me with ultimate reality. More significantly, maybe we picture it this way. Repenting is aligning me to the relationship I desperately need with God. I can't live life any other way. I need Him, and so I don't want anything to get between us. Why repent? Because I can't do life without it. I can't do life without God. And so many things want to get in between God and I. I've got to repent and get rid of that stuff. Reason number two, why else would I repent? What else would lead me down that road? Because God blesses us. Why continually be repenting and and aligning and realigning myself with God? Why, Why do that? Because God himself offers his desire. It's his desire to bring blessing into our lives. Look at all of verse 19. You know, is the seed yet in the barn? No. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But, from this day onward, I will bless you. Okay, God knows that life's beyond us. But it's not beyond Him. He can and He does bring blessing into our lives. Why would I want to be tight with God? Because He blesses in amazing ways. God the Father has been very graciously showing me over the last number of months, last probably two, three months, that I personally, I need to grow in repentance. And so I stand here feeling anything but capable of telling you how to do it. I am not the expert. But I don't want to just stand up here and say, repent! And not offer you any help. How do you do that? How is God showing us we can do this? What does it mean? Let me finish with two suggestions. Okay? Suggestion number one, I'd say ponder and pray over Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Okay? Those verses read this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God, shine a light. Let's take a look. Now, something that might, how do we do that to help us in that pondering, help us work through that? My second suggestion would be to ask questions from a George Whitfield quote. Now, in the worship folder, you had what I was told, oh, you're giving us an essay to read. Um, This document. This document was put together by a pastor by the name of Timothy Keller. On the front side where the kind of the bar is, he talks a little bit more about just repentance in general. And then on the back, he'll tell you a little bit about a George Whitfield quote. On, in a January 9, 1738 letter, George Whitfield kind of gave what became known as sort of an order of repentance. Sort of something he used in his life nightly to kind of say, I need to repent. So the quote reads this way. Okay, God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. Then let men or devils do their worst. 
the back side of this handout, this essay, takes each of those parts of the quote and basically gives us questions we can use in that sense to ask ourselves, how am I doing in terms of humility? How am I doing in terms of zeal? How am I doing in terms of love? And how am I doing in terms of a single eye, meaning focus? How am I doing there? Because folks, these are areas in life where it's really easy for stuff to get between us and God. Folks, this isn't simple. This isn't easy. But you and I can overlook something that's critical because it's obvious. And I pray we don't. Because the most important thing wasn't the rebuilding of the temple. The most important thing was the rebooting of their souls. The most important thing for us as a church today is not the room on the other side of this wall. The most critical thing for us today as a church and for each of us individually is the rebooting of our souls. And I pray through what Haggai, what God shared to Haggai, is it will ignite us to be people who repent and are truly aligned with the God we need. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful to you for today. And I am grateful to you for the gift of your word. Lord, I pray that we have heard you. Lord, I pray that it really is your voice that has filled this room. And I pray that it is your glory that's going to come out from this. Father, it is so easy for us to miss things. I pray today that we do not miss, nor do we ignore you. Lord, these might be hard words, but you say them for our good. And I pray we would receive fully what you have for us. Thank you for the chance to be here this morning in the very precious and incredibly powerful, awesomely powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.